have your Bibles tonight, please turn to Genesis chapter 35. Genesis chapter 35, and we'll pick it up tonight in just a moment in verse 16. The second half of Genesis 35 brings us to the end of an era. The narrative's focus on Isaac's son Jacob and Esau is about to come to a close as the story of Genesis end of the Bible begins to focus on his 12 sons. There was a marker signaling to us that we were headed here when Rebecca's nurse died and her burial place was called an oak of weeping back in verse 8. The story that began with Jacob grasping his twin brother's heel at his birth will end with Jacob unable to hang on to his precious wife or his father. Uh, but it is set against the backdrop of the birth of his last child. So Chapters 35 and 36 make a transition from Jacob to his sons, but they do so not only in the midst of death, but in the midst of new life. The linking of those two events shows just how much the faith and life of Jacob's family is intergenerational. As Ecclesiastes 3.2 reveals, there's a time to be born and a time to die. Dying always is happening in the midst of life. Living is always happening in the midst of death. This time is both of those times. We haven't seen Rachel really since chapter 33, but we know she was the love of Jacob's life and her last son that is born here will become extremely valuable to Jacob, most likely because he's his last link to her. And so the life of the family is one of sorrow and celebration. These were realities that Jacob and his family were used to. They had to become used to them. This became the story of the nation of Israel. As after all, she had been through and suffered. She finally stood on the edge of the promised land as she was reading Genesis. It's our story tonight as the church, the household of God now in the world. Celebration and sorrow, life and death. When we read the story of Rachel's death and the sojourning of Jacob alongside this long genealogy of Esau in chapter 36, we come to a certain understanding about life in this world. And the coming of Jesus into our world was God's final stamp of approval on the life of faith. His sojourning, his death, didn't end with a burial. It ended with a resurrection, right? The guarantee of his promise in a world that cycles endlessly through life and death. Outside of God's grace, there is no hope for an enduring future. Let's pray. Together, Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And God, we thank you for the word that makes him known. And God, as I preach, would you enable me to do so in a way that makes him clear? As everyone listens, would you help us all focus on him and believe this word we ask and pray in his name and for our sakes. Amen. Look there, just the first part of verse 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel. Now, the text doesn't tell us why. Jacob and his household left Bethel, but we know from verse 19 they're headed toward Ephrath, Bethlehem, on their way to Hebron, which would mean Jacob is finally going to return to his father's house. This journey brings death that ends a generation with it and sets the stage for the story of the family's 12 sons with the beginning of a new life here. Again, if you remember, while they were at Bethel earlier in the chapter, Rebecca's nurse, Deborah, had died. She had accompanied Jacob's mother, Rebecca, when she had left Haran 
with Abraham's servant to marry Isaac way back in chapter 24. You can imagine, after all this time, Jacob had formed a very close relationship with his mother's nurse, who had been with him most of his life, which is why probably her death brings him so much grief. Deborah was a reminder at the beginning of the chapter that the older generation is beginning to die off, but the death of Isaac at the end of this chapter signifies that the era of the patriarchs is coming to an end. Time passes. We live and we die. This is the life of a sojourner in this world, regardless of the name, right? Regardless of the notoriety. Let's pick it up halfway through verse 16. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, do not fear for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. So Rachel gave birth to her second son, but tragically, on the way from Bethel to Bethlehem, she dies while giving birth. So the last son of Jacob is born in the land, and his wife is buried in the land that God had promised to give to Abraham's descendants. Originally, the name of the son was Benoni or Benoni, which means son of my sorrow. And verse 18, which would forever emphasize how difficult his birth was for Rachel. Jacob, however, names him something different, something more positive, something less likely to remind him every time he said it, right, that his wife had died while giving birth to him. Benjamin means son of the right hand. The right hand is a phrase that represents the place of power or favor. So his name at the outset represents Jacob's desire to uh, reverse the circumstances of Benjamin's birth. So that this son becomes a special son of favor as the story of the family unfolds. Jacob, if we just stop for a moment, has had a very hard life, hasn't he? But so have Rachel and Leah. So have Bilhah and Zilpah. We don't read any of their emotions here, though, do we? We don't really see any of that. But we do get a sense of the gravity of the moment when you read what happens at the beginning of verse 21, which summarizes what this family has had to deal with. In the midst of Rachel's death. Look at that. Israel journeyed on. That's the way of the world. And it always has been since the curse. They just leave her there. They have to move on. They have to continue. We to this day, when someone passes, we have to pick up the pieces and move on, even in the midst of death. The difference about death, or of death in the family of faith, is not the present Right? The, the present experience of life on the earth is basically the same for everybody, whether they're in the family of faith or not. Our presents are the same. It's our futures that are different. Uh, our futures inform how we endure through the present. And so 
If God's covenant promise stands over us, that means the present we experience is not ultimate. Our present is shaped by our future, right? Which is a miracle, really. But if a person stands outside God's promise in salvation, their future is shaped by their present, right? Their future is going to be pure math. In a world that is cursed, the only guarantee is death and judgment, no matter how good or bad the present is. But the present is the same experience for everybody, right? The the nation of Israel could rejoice on the border of the promised land, yes, but had the wake of slavery and death and suffering behind it. But in the midst of life and death, we journey on. And so this story puts both the positive and the negative before us. It not only reminds us of God's faithfulness and giving Jacob many sons in the land in verses 23 to 26, but it also sets up the conflict and rivalry that is to come in this little note about the oldest son, Reuben, and it doesn't bode well for the future there. In verse 22, while Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were 12. So after Rachel dies, Leah's oldest son, Reuben, has a sexual relationship with Bilhah, who is Jacob's concubine here, and the mother of his brothers, Dan and Naphtali. That's a bold move to put it kindly. Reuben is trying to stake his claim as the new leader of the family. That's what he's doing. He will be condemned for this act against his father and will forfeit his privileged place as the firstborn son. Jacob doesn't say anything here. This seems to be his MO. He waits, but he remembers when he speaks against Reuben for what he did as he lay dying in chapter 49. So Jacob will remember this. This family is still played with the issues of the firstborn son. All through it, you have unworthy firstborn sons or you have younger or illegitimate sons that desire what is rightfully the elders. And so it's always been that way with this family. This is the way it is with the promise. It's always in jeopardy because of its recipients. So again, if God doesn't decide to bless in spite of their unworthiness, the promise will not come to fruition. The people are not worthy of it. And so we're left again in the narrative very quietly waiting for a good son. And the story of the Bible will continue to wait for a good son for a long time. Chapter 35 brings two of the other important characters back into the end of Jacob's story. Pick it up in verse 27. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. And Isaac breathed his last and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So Jacob returned safely to his father at Hebron just before he died. Isaac was blessed with a long life of 180 years. The description of his death parallels the death of his father Abraham, who's mentioned, if you'll notice there, in verse 27, so that at the end of Genesis 35, what do you have? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, all mention the family of promise together again in the text. And Jacob and his brother Esau bury their father Isaac. But the promise of covenant blessing that began with Abraham will go through the family of Jacob. That is very important and significant 
as we come into chapter 36, which strangely, it seems, is just the extended genealogy or the toldote in Genesis of Esau. Why spend one whole chapter on the development of Esau's descendants if he is not the child of promise? I think the point is to draw a line between life inside and outside the covenant as it pertains to his future, as it pertains to everyone's future. Rather than read the whole chapter straight through, 36, since that would be very tedious, right? I've never, I've always wondered, I've never preached numbers or first and second chronicles, but I always wondered how you just get through reading all that, but that would be tedious. So let me pick up on the highlights. Pick up chapter 36 and verse 1. He writes, these are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites. Um, the text doesn't give any commentary on this at this point, but we know right away, if we've been reading Genesis, this means that Esau went against God's will and the desire of his grandfather Abraham in taking wives from Canaanites. Skip down to verse 6. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. So again, notice how the text is... I guess, quietly or maybe not so quietly, making a distinction here between Jacob and Esau based on the land. And something chapter 36 is adamant to make clear for Israel's sake is the fact that Esau is Edom. That's referenced four times in this chapter. This is especially important now that we know Jacob is what? Israel, right, from 35.10. So the chapter can be divided into two parts, really, beginning at verse 1 and verse 9. The phrase is, these are the generations of. And so uh, the first eight verses address Esau's immediate family, his wives and the sons born to them are named. We find out why Esau moved to Seir, again, which is Edom. God had blessed he and Jacob with so much cattle that the land couldn't sustain both of them. As a result of that, Esau is separated from the land of promise. It's what you see, it's what you were meant to see happening there. He doesn't stay in the land. He settles in a place where his descendants will become their own nation. That's why the rest of the chapter frames the descendants of Esau as the development of this nation. Verses 10 through 19 focus on his sons and his grandsons, including the ones who became chiefs, which would have been clan or tribal leaders. The second section lays out the sons and chiefs of Seir, the Horite, in verses 20 through 30. He was the ancestor of the Horite clans. Esau's descendants intermarried with him, but they also... Uh, dispossessed the Horites from their land in verses 31 to 39. In verse 31, Israel is being reminded of the relationship between the two nations. Look at verse 31. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. So they're being reminded again, Edom had kings before Israel did, but they eventually became subject to King David and to his dynasty for the most part. The last part of the chapter returns to the chiefs of Edom that were descended from Esau by their clans and regions, meaning that the emphasis on chiefs from Esau framed this section rather than kings, which is what was promised to Jacob in 3511. Again, it's all very riveting, 
information. But why is this important enough to dedicate one whole chapter in Genesis to it? First of all, this account shows us that God did bless Esau. Pull back for a moment. This chapter is here to remind us of God's character. Right, His love for all creation, His will for the whole world, for every nation, as was originally promised to Abraham. Remember, the entire world was in the scope of the promise to Abraham, even though for a time the focus will be Israel. We know the story, we know the story, so we're in a hurry to get to Joseph, that's where it really gets good. The text isn't in the same hurry, do you notice that? The text completely grinds the narrative to a halt with one whole chapter about Esau and a bunch of descendants that really we don't really care about. And I don't mean that really in a mean way. It's just it's not the part of the story we want to get to. But even though Esau and his descendants are not partakers of the promise of covenant blessing from Genesis 12, 1 through 3, that does not mean God shows no concern for them whatsoever. That's one reason why. I think chapter 36 is here. The other reason would be, this is a part of Israel's history. The relationship between Edom and Israel was rocky to say the least. The prophet Obadiah speaks to this. During much of Israel's history, Edom was under Israel's kings. But whenever Israel would become weak, Edom would revolt. Second uh, Kings 18 or 8, 16 through 24, eventually Edom would weaken to the point of being completely displaced as a nation by an Arabian tribe called the Nabadians in the 4th century B.C. But in Malachi 1, 1 through 5, the prophet uses Edom, that is Esau, as an example of a nation that doesn't have a future because they are separated from the covenant and not loved by God. Esau was not part of the promise. But God's blessing even over his life and that of his descendants is evidence that creation as a whole benefits from the fact that a promise has been made to Abraham for all nations. What we come to discover is that its blessing is secured by only those who come to Jesus Christ by grace through faith. These kinds of things in the Old Testament, care and blessing for Esau, right? Provisions in the law for the sojourner, the exile that we read about later. These are all little ways in which God is showing his hand for the future. When the New Testament reveals that God's design to save sinners from every tribe and tongue and people and nation was his plan from before creation... That means we need to let that frame our understanding and interpretation of even the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, as much as the rest of the Old Testament. Why does God care about the descendants of Esau? When the text says in Malachi 1, 2, and 3, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Now, first of all, For what it's worth, I don't know that we're capable of understanding what it means when the Bible says that God hates people. Because it does say that. He's angry with the wicked every day. He hates all workers of iniquity. He abhors certain types of sinners, the Bible says. What does it mean that God hates when he's not a human being like us? Right? 
Though we know God the Son became human flesh, right? No question. But the Father, the first person of the Holy Trinity, is not a man in this way. So at the very least we would know his hatred is not a bitter or vindictive impulse. It's a holy one. So God's hatred wouldn't be, when we hate, hatred is normally the end of a process of deciding that we absolutely hate somebody. Right? It's, it's, we arrive at it through anger and frustration and all those kinds of things. For God, hatred would be a holy impulse. Right? Not because he's grouchy. My, my point here would be that even in the midst of something as holy as God's hatred, mercy triumphs over judgment. And when we, Read of the death of Rachel and the death of Isaac and the birth of Benjamin and the sojourning of Jacob and trace the descendants of Esau out of that who, like Ishmael, were not just discarded, they were cared for. We are getting a sense of who the God of plan and promise truly is. Right? We're getting glimpses into the complexity of God's character when we know he hates and has not put these people in his covenant and yet takes the time to bless them and to care for them. And in that we see, or we get at least a glimpse of how much it must mean then for a human being to belong to him and to be in his hand and to abide under his promise. If those he rejects and does not call his own benefit from his mercy, what must his heart be like for those he loves and those to whom he gives grace. Look at 37.1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. Esau intermarried with the people of the region. Jacob took his wives from outside the land. Esau moved away from the land to settle in the area of Edom. Jacob, however, was heir to the promise God made concerning the land. That's where he sojourned. And so this section actually closes... In the first verse of chapter 37 with Esau separated and Jacob living in the land of Canaan. Just like his ancestors, Jacob is just a sojourner in this land waiting for the promises of God to be fulfilled. Every human being can enjoy the benefits of the fact that God is merciful and cares for his whole creation. Every person can enjoy moments that we're given. We can continue on in the midst of the sorrow that we face. But the reality is this. Outside of God's grace, there is no hope for an enduring future. If we are not in the covenant of God, we have no future. This is why when God saves us, he places us in his covenant, right? When the covenant-making God ratified the new covenant in the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, He secured the future He had been promising to the seed of Abraham, to those of faith, for all eternity. That's what He was doing. He was sealing the terms of this covenant. Under that covenant, under His wings, our future now shapes our present. Right? No matter what the present looks like, the presence of the future in my life is the evidence of God's enduring promise over me before I even reach the blessing. I have not yet arrived here, but it is my possession now. No matter where I go, no matter what I do, no matter what happens to me, no matter what happens to those that I love, 
The fact that God has secured my eternity through the blood and righteousness of his son is the only thing that actually shapes my destiny. Beloved, this is so important for us to understand. No, we've not yet obtained it. We're sojourners here. But God is not simply a promise maker. He is the promise keeper. The only way for a human being to have a future is to be a recipient of God's grace. Outside of that, what can be gained or enjoyed here will last no longer than the moment. Nothing of the earth will remain after I take my last breath. The only thing that overcomes the world is faith in God alone for salvation. Here, beloved, we live and we die, whether we belong to the Lord or not. We have no lasting city. There is a time for everything under the sun, and we'll feel everything as we travel here. But God's grace transcends the world, is Lord over the circumstances and experiences of my life. That means for the believer, there's always a reality hanging over what I'm actually experiencing that is bigger than what I'm experiencing all the time. No matter where I am, no matter where I'm sojourning, no matter what I've lost, no matter what I've gained, the believer remains steady because what's coming in the future is his or hers now by virtue of the quality and the certainty of God's promise. Beyond the sun, right? Beyond the world, in the new heavens and the new earth, where they need no light because the Son of God is the light, the time for everything, that will be over. You realize that? Ecclesiastes is written for those living under the sun. And under the sun, there's a time for everything. A time to live, a time to die, right? You know that verse, that, that text. You do realize that the time for everything is ending. It will not always be the time for everything. It will not always be the time for life and death. It will not always be the time for sorrow and joy. It will not always be the time for celebration and suffering. One day, beloved, the sun will go away. There will be no need for a sun. The Son of God will be the light and the time of the reign of grace will be the only reality. Right, And the presence of that future now in my heart, by God's promise, this is what holds us steady. It's all there is to hold the believer steady. All our lives we're going to go through things that make us doubt the promise. Right, Whether you're young or old, teenager, adult, older adult, there, there are always going to be things in the present that are threatening my stability, threatening my security. For the believer, the presence of the future is what shapes the present experience. Right? Do, do, you, do we understand that? That for the person not in the covenant, for the person outside of God's salvation promise, their future only in that is, is math. Right? That, that's the only, they have to work to secure a future. You and I do not. Jesus has done all the work. Again, he's done all the heavy lifting. You and I rest 
in the promise, which means what makes sense for us is to come under his wings, beloved. Rest in his arms. Inside of God's grace, the future is guaranteed. It was for Jacob as he lost Rachel, as he went through the difficulties of his life, ended in the land, a sojourner, will read of his death, will read of his passing. None of those things determined the man's future. His future was determined by a promise. And so it is, even in the present, for you and I. Inside of God's grace, the future is guaranteed. This has always been the case. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. My Thanksgiving present to you is a 28-minute sermon on a Sunday night. I'm at the end of my notes. I didn't even realize it would be that fast. But God's word is sufficient. Let me pray for us. And again, I know I said so this morning, but I really do hope you all have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Please be safe. Have a wonderful time. I hope none of you will be alone. I hope you can be with family and friends, at least someone. But have a wonderful holiday week. Let's pray together. You'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for speaking to us in this book. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us to trust it, not because the words of the book are eternal life, but what they testify to, your Son, is eternal life. In Him we have life. In Him we see light. And so, Father, may your Son illuminate us this week, turn our hearts to you, remind us of the things for which we can be thankful. Watch over your people, watch over everyone in our church, all the families, all the people that are A part of us, Lord, please bless them during this time. Give them grace and peace and joy. And Lord, we praise you and thank you for all things. And we ask and pray for this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.